Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is made possible with the support of Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotelconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. He has a first cousin who's a violinist so notable that she was portrayed in a movie by Meryl Streep. True story. He's former CEO of Spirit Airlines, Ben Baldanza, who now teaches about how airlines work. That is a true story. If given the chance to cover the story of the first 737 MAX back in service to land in Harrisburg, he may not take it if there's even a better story for him to take. He's Seth Kaplan, NPR's here, now transportation analyst. Yeah, so much going on. Who pay, who played you in the movie, Ben? That's what I wonder. Well, know. it wasn't a story about me, so there no one needed to play me, Seth. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I don't, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. Pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. Today, who would have ever imagined that JetBlue would someday fly to Key West? No, just kidding. Well, I mean, JetBlue is about to start flying to Key West, but that's not the new city everyone never, ever imagined. Plus, an airline market that will be as big in early 2021 as it was in early 2020. Yes, you heard that right. First, though, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. Stop the presses. JetBlue is flying to Guatemala City. Wait, no, no, no. Let's try that again. Extra, extra, read all about it. JetBlue is flying to Los Cabos. No, 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 that's not that either. Breaking news, JetBlue is launching service to Key West. Okay, so yeah, all those things are true and they're all interesting, but they're not the reason we're leading the show with a story about JetBlue. The reason we're leading the show with a story about JetBlue is the same reason we led the show with a story about Southwest a few months ago. JetBlue announced it's going to begin flying to Miami from Boston, New York, JFK, Newark, and with LifeLab Mint Service, in this case, Los Angeles. Ben, uh, first, what is it with Miami all of a sudden? I mean, I, I get it. Leisure, it's, it's a destination. I mean, is, is, is that it? You know, all of these airlines that always saw it as a high-cost airport, incompatible with low-cost service, What what's going on here? Well, you know, Frontier was the first to sort of step a toe in there, if you remember, and they started serving yep. Miami like way before COVID, right? Yeah. And people saw that they were kind of successful there, were able to get a little higher fare out of there than Fort Lauderdale. Maybe not enough difference to cover the cost of operating there, but enough difference to say I'm attracting enough new market because you've lived in that area, Seth. You know that... Miami and Fort Lauderdale are close, but they're not right next to each other. And if you live in Homestead or you live in Key Biscayne or something like that, it's it's not that easy to get to Fort Lauderdale or you certainly maybe don't want to drive that far. So if you can get a reasonable fare, you might pay 10, 20 bucks more to fly out of Miami than Lauderdale because you'll spend more than that getting to Lauderdale. And so I think what airlines are realizing now, Southwest, JetBlue, 
Frontier earlier, is that you can serve Palm Beach, Lauderdale, and Miami, and you need to serve all of those to potentially serve the, you know, six million plus people who live on that side of Florida. And if you think about it, it's not different than what JetBlue does in New York, serving Newark, LaGuardia, Kennedy, Stewart, Islip, right? Things like that. Or yeah. in Los Angeles, uh, Southern California, where they serve a couple different airports. Or what Spirit's doing now, going into Orange County as well as Los Angeles. Airlines are figuring out that if you want to serve everyone, you got to maybe be in a couple of different places. And in fact, I remember years ago when AirTran served Miami before Southwest bought AirTran, uh, flew from Miami to Atlanta, basically fed its hub in Atlanta. Southwest bought AirTran and pulled out of Miami. And I took a look because I thought, well, hey, that's a kind of a neat opportunity to test the market for Southwest with something that's just kind of already existing, right? It didn't have to go in there and make a big splash. Uh, thinking, well, I, I wonder how bad things were going there for it to make the decision to, uh, you know, not just passively continue serving Miami, but to actually pull out of Miami. And I went into the DOT data via, well, I was going to say via Syrian, I guess it would have been DO back then. Um, and uh, sure enough, they seemed to be covering the differential in terms of, and this is what you were getting at, Ben. I mean, it it doesn't cost infinitely more to serve Miami. It, co it costs a certain amount more <laughs> to serve Miami. And the question is, do you get it in the fares or do you not, right? And so if it's like, you know, let's say eight or 10 bucks more each way to serve Miami than to serve Fort Lauderdale, then the question is, do you get an extra eight or 10 bucks more each way or whatever the differential is? Might be a little less than that. And at the time, I remember looking at it and, and thinking, yeah, they're getting it. Like looking at the fares out of Miami compared to what AirTran itself was getting out of Fort Lauderdale, they were getting the premium out of Miami. And, and so I thought to myself that it just seemed kind of doctrinaire of Southwest at the time to pull out of Miami because, well, we don't serve Miami, right? And, and that maybe they hadn't fully thought that through. And, and of course, here we are now in the middle of a crisis, which is causing all kinds of airlines to think about different things. And and we see not only Southwest, but in this case, JetBlue uh, going back in there. Now, of course, at Miami, you have this little hub uh, belonging to an airline a few people have heard of called American. <laughs> and that is interesting also because American and JetBlue, of course, are becoming closer partners. Correct me if I'm wrong here, though. That is something that JetBlue would just look at and American would just look at as, as, as competition, right? I mean, they're not, they're, they're not in a joint venture or anything like that, right? This is something where JetBlue has to think first about JetBlue and probably made the decision based on that. Or, and again, I realize you're on the board of JetBlue and you can't tell us about anything that goes on inside, but, but in terms of an airline, any airline doing something like this, are they thinking about partnership angles? No, well, I can, uh, yes, I am on the board of JetBlue, but I can tell you about anything that's been said publicly. And what has been said publicly by both American and JetBlue is that the deal is all about the Northeast. It's about New York and Boston. And other areas where both of the airlines fly are just not part of the deal. So... JetBlue's entrance into Miami does, I don't think it's related to their deal with American. And uh, I don't know that American has anything to say about it, to be honest. Right. Um, but, but the bottom line is, I think it's a, it's a, 
as JetBlue, like we've seen United do, like we're seeing Southwest do, and like you're seeing a lot of airlines do, they're looking at the map and saying, where are people willing to travel and where are the new lanes of opportunity opening? And that's why you see Los Cabos and New York, Guatemala City and Charleston to LA and things like that, which sound maybe crazy at first, but you start to realize where people are going and where the opportunities are, and you're trying to put more planes in the air, and that makes sense. Let me say something else about the Southwest pullout of Miami when they bought AirTran. There used to be a theory, or I shouldn't, I don't know if I'd say a theory, but a sense that if you didn't exactly poke the bear in his home turf, maybe they'd ignore you a little. So maybe American wouldn't notice you so much if you flew to Fort Lauderdale, but if you flew to Miami, they couldn't ignore you. Well, yeah. we learned at Spirit that that didn't really work because whatever we did in Fort Lauderdale, American would sort of know that that was affecting in Miami So in some ways. But I think at the time, if you go back in time to when Southwest bought AirTran, I think Southwest might've thought, you know, we don't fly to DFW and we have sort of this Cold War with American in Dallas. And we're at Hobby and had this Cold War with United at Bush International. And so we don't we don't need to sort of fight that way. We can just get our traffic out of Fort Lauderdale and our fares are low enough that people will drive. And and I think that world has just changed now. And you've seen it change in Southwest saying we're going to O'Hare, we're going to Intercontinental. We've covered that on this podcast. And I think that idea that, you know, by maybe staying at the alternate airport or staying a little away, people don't know you're there. There's just too few airlines now and there's too little traffic going around that everybody knows what everybody's doing. So just fly where the people are. Staying in Florida, Ben, not because I'm from there and not because I'm in Harrisburg looking at snow out the window and thinking it might not be so bad down in Florida right now, but because it's where the action is, as you said. So staying in Florida, you mentioned United and Frontier. Let's talk about Delta. You know, I can't ever remember people paying as much attention to week by week kind of arcane schedule moves by airlines uh, as people are doing nowadays. And or in other words, adding a flight here and there, taking away flights, not just new markets like what we were talking about before, but just kind of routine capacity movements. But this is the condition that we're in right now. And uh, one of the people who does that is Brett Snyder at Cranky Flyer. Uh, he does this this feature every week in his blog, he calls it the skids of airlines. It sounds like the days of our lives, which either you know it or you don't. If you if you uh, were exposed to that uh, that uh, soap opera way back, uh, so anyway, he noticed and he wrote this, and I had to go and check it out myself. Not because I don't believe him, but just because it just sounded unbelievable that Delta is going to have more capacity scheduled as of now. This coming March, March of 2021, than it had in March of 2020. And I found that incredible. Now, keep in mind, yeah, I know the pandemic started in March, but like the schedules hadn't changed yet by then. It was April is when all the schedules fell apart. So considering how much smaller Delta is overall, how much smaller every airline is overall, it is actually bigger in Florida by any measure. I noticed when I checked it out by flights, by seats, by available seat miles. I mean, just a little bit, but bigger than it was a year earlier. 
is Delta going to make money in Florida? Is anybody going to make money in Florida in, in, in March, which is peak season in Florida, or is this just still a least bad option? Is this still just making lemonade? Well, it's a good question. I think there's going to be a lot of seats in Florida, which tends to mean that maybe airlines aren't going to make that much money in Florida. But it's also where more people are going. And it's one of the states where things are more open. We all know that Governor DeSantis has said that we're not going to close the restaurants. We're not going to do some things. Now, whether people are going to be comfortable with sort of gathering or going to a beach with lots of other people, I'm not sure that's going to be true. My sense is that March is a long way off, right? And so Delta and maybe even some other airlines are loading capacity where they think people might book, but they've got time to just say, you know, these flights aren't filling, so maybe we won't fly quite as much. And I think uh, the cranky flyer sort of noted that point a bit, (laughs) that they might be overscheduling to say, hey, we don't know where people are going to go, so we'll schedule flights for everywhere, knowing that we can't fly everything, but we'll see where people are really going. And maybe when we get a little bit closer to the month and we have to bid the pilots or something like that, that's when it becomes real as to whether we're really going to fly this stuff. But here in the end of December, where else are you going to book capacity in March other than maybe Florida or if you're on the West Coast, maybe a Phoenix or something like that, right? And so I think that's the case. I don't expect that airlines as a group are going to be making money almost anywhere in March. I, I just I just can't imagine that traffic recovers that quickly. I'm still somewhat concerned about the summer. A lot of people disagree with me on that. A lot of people think it's going to be a very strong summer, and I certainly hope it is a very strong summer. But I think the timing of when the vaccine actually rolls out and how many people actually take it and when do... When does Governor Cuomo in New York and other governors and legislators say, I believe enough people have taken it that I'm willing to let things open again? Seems the timing of all that makes the early part of summer still somewhat uncertain to me. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's bigger questions, obviously, in the airline industry, as has been the case this whole pandemic, are going to drive that. And you're right, in order to get the whole booking curve of the summer, because people aren't going to plan vacations typically on very short notice, right? They need time off from work and all the rest of it. Uh, you know, people would have to be feeling pretty good by sometime in the spring about the idea that uh, that it's going to be a good summer. Now, I know there's flexibility and you can back out of your travel plans. And all yeah, that. and when do you have to, and how when do you have to start feeling good to say I'll fly to Florida in March? Right. Yeah. Right? No, that, that, yeah. No. I. I mean, I. I'd love to go to Florida in, in March because yeah, we have family there among other things. Uh, haven't been down there this whole time. And, uh, but well, I guess if actions speak louder than words, the point is I haven't booked (laughs) a trip like that yet. And I will be glad to do so, uh, when, when the, uh, when, when the time is right. But, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, I think, you know, the over under would be somewhere around the summer, right. In terms of where you kind of get most people, feeling okay again about traveling. And then there are the economic questions, right? Uh, There are a lot of people suffering. It's been an interesting recession, right? There are a lot of people who are just kind of fine economically, but there are a lot of people who aren't. And let's see what happens here going forward. All kinds of economic questions uh, that, that, you know, obviously will also drive airline demand along with the 
pandemic itself. Well, Dan of Bloomington, Indiana writes, a topic I'd love to hear you discuss is how airlines revenue management software works and how airlines choose to price match their competitors. I have an interesting case study that happened yesterday evening. Delta published a business class mistake fair at about five o'clock on he writes December 16th. So this is back last week as he's writing it. Price is $479 nonstop from New York to Sao Paulo round trip. And it was available at that price for about three hours before Delta pulled the fare. What puzzles me is that at about 6.30, American Airlines matched the fare and also started selling nonstop round-trip business class tickets to Brazil for $479 for a couple hours before they adjusted the price back up to $2,071. It's too much of a coincidence to assume both airlines made the exact same pricing mistake at the same time. So uh, presumably, American's revenue management software intentionally match Delta's mistake fare. Why would American allow its prices, Dan asks, to fluctuate so dramatically over a short period of time? And why would there not be an internal limit in place to prevent them from matching a wildly incorrect fare? I guess actually, Ben, there'd be some pricing and revenue management maybe involved there because I I, I would think that that fare wouldn't even exist as a published fare, but but who knows? What what. What about that? Well, there is so much in that question that Dan asked that I don't know, it would take a couple of podcasts, I think, or a couple of episodes to answer the whole thing. But there's a couple of things. First, I want to quibble a bit with his comment of wildly incorrect fare. I used to, my head of marketing at Spirit, who's now the CEO of another airline, um, used to have this joke that says, those who think my fares are irrational haven't seen my book Load Factor. and i always thought that was a funny but very true statement so sometimes when you see a competitor do something you think is wrong you question did did they really mean to do that maybe they did and if they did maybe i do need to react so there's some of that secondly um, so so in other words and and just just to to put a finer point on that nowadays i mean in this environment that we're in it could be possible that Delta was just looking at just a completely empty business class cabin on some flight and thinking this more than covers my variable costs and I am looking at getting nothing and $479, even though it's obviously not fully allocated profitable, right? Like the airline wouldn't be profitable if it took that across its system, might cover its variables and might be rational. Well, it's possible. And no airline right now, at least no airline that I know of, is pricing or managing their capacity against what they would call fully allocated cost. They're saying, when that plane takes off and after it lands, do I have more cash in the bank than when I started the flight? So do I cover the cost of fuel I burned and what I paid my pilots? Because if the plane sits on the ground, I'm still paying the airplane lease and I'm still right. paying for my gates at both ends. And I'm still. And, and, and once you make the decision to put the plane in the air, then it's then the bar is even lower. Yes. Because no, now that, it's because exactly now it's right. what are my what what are my variable costs? Right. It's not because it's not that that the four hundred seventy nine dollars has to cover the pilot's cost because you already that's already taken for granted. The, the, that's a sunk cost. So so now it's just does it cover 
the you know the fuel involved in lifting that one passenger and just those other kinds of variable costs which aren't all that high no that's right so i can't say i can't say whether delta's 479 was a fare they ever wanted that really could have been a mistake sure but it's also possible that and also likely in this case that american systems saw that and it still was above their the minimum price they would take to cover their variable cost of having the seat full in a low demand environment. So they said, okay, my competitor's there. It's still a fare I'm willing to take, so I'll match that fare. And as soon as Delta went back, they they probably went back, right? So I could see that American system probably did have some limits. Don't sell below my marginal cost. It's probably a different limit than they might have in a normal operating environment, right? They might not sell that low. In fact, if you want to think about the way the industry has worked historically, if Delta put a really low fare in a market that's important to American, the way America might normally react is to put a really low fare in a market Delta cares a lot about, not that yeah. same market, right? And Delta would say, yeah. why is American doing that over here? I better see yeah. what I'm doing to them over there, right? And that's kind of the way the industry has worked a little more. I think in this case... It probably was a mistake by Delta. American system probably did automatically match the fare. Both airlines probably caught it relatively quickly. But a couple of people probably got a really great round trip fare to Sao Paulo and, and you know, in business class. And, and in most cases, for the ones who got bought, Seth, I bet they're sitting in seats that would have been empty otherwise. So I don't know that either airline is that upset that this happened. Yeah, the opportunity cost, whether it was intentional or not, is really low these days. Well, time next for another listener question. But first, we want to thank Seabury Capital. Seabury is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, maritime and financial services and technologies. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision-makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. That's seabury, S-E-A-B-U-R-Y, capital.com. Evan of Atlanta writes two call sign stories for you. He says, marketing hijinks, I've flown legacy flight one a couple times on a 737 so remember ben we a week or so back talked about how flight numbers are assigned and so forth right, right. evan writes once it was san juan jfk and once it was san francisco to jfk both times legacy one as he calls it continued on to london heathrow obviously with an aircraft change I've been told this allows the flight to be marketed as direct service from San Francisco to London Heathrow, not nonstop service, uh, with a tiny footnote that says somewhere aircraft change required at JFK. But this makes Legacy One come up first on the booking services when someone searches for San Francisco uh, London Heathrow flights. Can't confirm this as I'm just an operations guy, but it sounds plausible. Story two, Evan says, in the late 90s, I flew for the dearly departed Business Express Airlines. Moment of silence. Thanks, Evan says. We flew as Delta Connection, American Eagle, and Northwest Airlink for a period of time. So each flight had four flight numbers. For example, internally on Boston to Burlington, Vermont, we might be 
Business Express 250, but Delta marketed it as DL4250, Northwest NW3250, and AA uh, as AA7250. I hope this was slightly more interesting than my P56 diatribe. (laughs) And Evan was the one who wrote about the uh, the restricted airspace. (laughs) Best wishes for continued mediocrity in 2021. I love that email. Thank you, Evan. And uh, yeah, the first, the second part was just that story he was relaying. The first part, you're you're right, Evan. I will ask Ben to clarify this. But yes, when airlines schedule these through flights, there can be some. Uh, marketing benefit there. It's something U.S. airlines do that, if I'm not mistaken, most others around the world don't do. And I've heard stories about how it can complicate things with code shares and so forth because, yeah, you have that one flight number that's really on uh, two different flights. Some people have considered it deceptive (laughs) for the reason that Evan notes that really it's just a connecting flight uh, with the same flight number. But but Ben, I mean, that that is right. It's, it's, it's the marketing benefit is why they do it, right? They say, well, it is the marketing benefit. And it's not only that they do it, Seth, they invest money to do it right. There's a Sabre, for example, a company that many of our listeners probably know of Sabre, for example, at least used to sell, probably still does sell tools for the revenue management and scheduling team to use called the through flight assignment model. Yeah. They you find know, out where, where, where would, the most demand is. They find out where the, yes, the OND they demand is. Where's the yeah, biggest yeah. revenue opportunity to connect flights with the same flight number. And it might be because there's no nonstop service. So your direct will look better than somebody else's connect. And so, yeah. you know, the, the direct wouldn't be as appealing as a nonstop in the way it was sorted, for example, at Expedia or something like that, if you looked by shortest service. But the direct would still be preferable to a connection in terms of the way people would see it. And so, you know, airlines have actually spent money to try to be smart about doing this. And so the San Francisco London Heathrow was probably a smart pick because there probably wasn't a lot of nonstop capacity and many people were connecting anyway. And so they thought that flight looked a little more appealing, even though all it was was just another connection. You know, sometimes you you, you tell a joke to yourself and it's a good thing that you're only telling it to yourself because nobody else would find <laughs> it very funny. I remember flying distinctly. This was, So this goes back like 15 years, I guess. I'm boarding a flight at Fort Lauderdale and a Delta Flight 88, from Fort Lauderdale to JFK. And then the continuation of flight 88 was to Kiev, right? Uh, when Delta was briefly serving Kiev from JFK. So I'm boarding this and it, it was not an MD 88, by the way, <laughs> Even though it was flight 88. It was a 757. I remember correctly, but I just remember joking to myself, like, boy, I hope I don't fall asleep, uh, you know, as we're landing at JFK and accidentally end up in Kiev. Right. Which obviously couldn't happen because it's a change of aircraft. It's basically a connecting flight. But I, I, but, some, <laughs> but some system figured out that there was somebody in Fort Lauderdale who really wanted to go to Kiev and I guess was more likely to book that <laughs> itinerary than whatever other options they had to go to Kiev in the winter or whatever it was. But uh, yeah, just uh, that I hadn't thought about that. In, well, you in know, and I, years or wherever it was. I'm sure some operator is going to correct me on this and I'm going to show sort of the limits of my operational knowledge here, even though I've, run airline operations uh, for some time. Um, 
But I also think that it, like an airline would have a hard time departing flight one before flight one landed. Yeah. Right. So that Fort Lauderdale Kiev customer might have also benefited from the fact that if there was delay, if there were delays in New York or their flight was late leaving Fort Lauderdale, that the Kiev flight couldn't take off yet until they landed. And I think there might be an operational benefit to a consumer of buying that direct service. Now, if they're different planes and it's and airlines did, you know, one number for marketing and a different for operations, which is crazy, but it's happened before, then maybe that's not true. But I'm sure some listener will correct me on that. Yeah. So I'm not even going to, I'm just going to hang you out there. Yeah. Hang me out to dry on that one and uh, (laughs) and let let somebody else correct it. And and I'll just pretend like, oh yeah, that's what I was thinking anyway. (laughs) Uh, Well, if you can't outsource something as inconsequential as my job, Why can you outsource something as important as aircraft maintenance? We'll talk about that when Airlines Confidential returns. Hotel Connections is the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotel Connections is a Fortune 1000 company that makes travel management easier and less expensive with their AI-powered booking applications, intelligent learning algorithms, customizable rules engines, analytics, and global negotiated rate programs. For travel, logistics, hotels, transport, and technology solutions, visit hotelconnections.com. That's hotelconnections.com. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Our friend Joe down in Tampa writes, Hi, Ben and Seth. Love the show. I'm an Airlines Confidential Diamond Confidential member. Wow. What what does that get you? <laughs> not, not much. Not much. But 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 thanks, Joe. Uh, it seems even better than, than the airlines. right? We really don't. People complain that you don't get much from these loyalty programs. You really don't get much from us being a Diamond member. But why do airlines, Joe asks, including Delta, outsource tech ops work to foreign countries? I have lots of heard lots of cooler talk and hear horror stories from tech ops personnel at DFW. Okay. I'm going to take a crack at this first, Ben, and I'll, I'll let you pick it up from there. So first of all, um, I, I, you always have to consider the source of whatever talk you're, you're listening to. And there are all kinds of different reasons why people might support or oppose outsourced anything right and some of the reasons why they might support or oppose it might be altruistic and genuine concern for for other people and some of them might be parochial reasons right i mean we all have our own interests and things that that benefit us or not and so uh, i mean just candidly when people who are impacted by the outsourcing of work uh talk about it and, and talk about what they see as the downsides, you just have to keep in mind, it doesn't mean they're wrong about those things. They might also be right, but they do have a stake in whether or not the the work is outsourced. And that said, uh, if we think about airlines that do and don't outsource work nowadays, okay, so I'm not talking about things that happened 
you know, in the past, and I'm not talking about maintenance that happened at value jet in the nineties and that sort of thing. I'm talking today. I'm unaware of any study that anybody's undertaken that has concluded that it is more or less safe to outsource work nowadays. Uh, there are airlines that have excellent in-house maintenance operations that are so good that other airlines hire those airlines. <laughs> they actually insource work from other airlines. And then there are there are uh, repair shops that are you know, basically what, what Joe is talking about here, outsource shops, that this is what they do. And, and in order to do that, they have to meet various industry standards uh, and, and 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 they're rather I know just enough about this stuff to know that they're rather rigorous. You know, it's it's the same standards. You know, even if you have your outsourced maintenance shop in Mexico or Central America or wherever, where the labor is cheap, or or their equivalents in other parts of the world, uh, you know, Eastern Europe for Western European airlines, those sorts of things. The standards uh, in terms of regulatory standards uh, are generally the same. So with that, Ben, what am I missing? Is there anything else? Does Joe have a point? Uh, and, and again, there, there I, I want to be clear. There are other, it, it's perfectly legitimate for somebody to say, you know, companies should not outsource work because of whatever other economic arguments that they want to make, right? That, that labor groups would want to make and those sorts of things. And those are all things that reasonable people can disagree on, right? Um, but in terms of um, the safety argument I'm talking about, uh, you know, the reality is that the industry today is about as safe as it's ever been, despite all the work that's outsourced today. Yeah, good thoughts, Seth. You know, one of the things that's true is you can outsource operations, you can outsource process, you can't outsource responsibility. And so a company that chooses to outsource, whether it's an airline or another, still has the responsibility to ensure that the work gets done to the proper standard. And so if an airline chooses to outsource its maintenance, for example, to a foreign country or just a, another city where its own employees don't work, they still are required to meet all the sort of service guidelines that they would have for maintenance still have to satisfy all the regulatory requirements, right? It doesn't absolve them of doing anything, but they may be able to get it done faster or maybe at a lower total rate um, by doing it somewhere else. And like you said, there are certain areas of the world that have become real specialists at doing certain things. And if there is a global industry that, even, that exists, it certainly would be the airlines, right? Airplanes are built all around the world with parts that come from all over the world. Airlines fly all over the world, right? It's the, you can work, you can live in lots of places, even on different continents and all work for the same company, right? So airlines are a very global kind of thing. So the thought that an airline might say, I'll let my maintenance be done over here by a company who's really good at it is, is in some ways even makes more sense for an airline than others. Cause it's not like, well, why would we go there? Nobody, for example, would be surprised to know that for many, many years, many companies outsourced their IT to countries like India. 
because India had and still has a lot of smart IT people, right? And you can get things done faster and 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 uh, with better accuracy and faster turnaround and everything and probably at lower cost rather than sort of having to hire all your own IT staff here. And some companies made that decision. And if you're a maintenance guy, that probably wouldn't bother you so much. But when you see maintenance outsourced, it hits closer to home, right? And so I think the key thing is that airlines make those decisions as business decisions, but not because they want to do anything um, that's wrong about the business. They want to do everything right, but they want to keep the costs low so they can keep fares lower too. Well, do you have a question for us? You could call us at 305-379-7429 and record a question. We'll play it on the air. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. Finer wine is next. But first, we want to thank Clear. Travel with confidence with Clear. Touchless, fast, safer airport travel. Clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports nationwide, moving you quickly and without crowds through airport security. Enroll today at www.clearme.com airlines. That's www.clearme.com airlines. Beginning our initial descent on today's show, it's time for fine or wine. We listen to an actual customer complaint and then we talk about whether a complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Ben, you have a complaint. An interesting one. Yes, Radha of Uttar Pradesh is complaining about United, or at least he says United. Maybe this is a code share flight operated by someone else, given that it's from Uttar Pradesh, and I don't see that on United's route map. Rada writes, for a bag worth 15,000 rupees damage, compensation of only 7,300 rupees is agreed after only giving invoice of a new purchase bag. Why compelling me to purchase a new bag? I'm just asking compensation for my damage. And I know, Ben, you know India a lot better than I do. Gosh, I am realizing that that my Indian geography is (laughs) embarrassingly so. Uh, But anyway, yeah, uh, you're probably right. So, so, so anyway, so yeah, so back to that. So basically, and again, this is this this could happen anywhere, right? He's saying, you know, forget the country and forget the currency. He's saying, you know, I uh, had this happen to me with the luggage, uh, and and the airline isn't offering to cover the full cost of what they did. Uh, is this fine or a whine? Well, Seth, I teach my class about this exact kind of idea, although I must admit I've never used Uttar Pradesh <laughs> for this. <laughs> uh, but um, it's a whine, and it's a whine because Rada agreed to the contract of carriage for the airline he flew or the United code share partner that he flew. What's the contract of carriage? Well, as you know, Seth, and probably many of our listeners do, it's a legal document that defines in very specific terms what the airline will do for you when things go wrong and what you can claim from the airline when things go wrong. And when you buy a ticket, you click a box that says, I agree with this contract of carriage. Now, I joke with my class that it's one of the biggest contracts that no one reads, but everybody signs because you don't think about reading. I mean, I think United's contract of carriage is over 50 pages long 
and and theirs isn't ridiculously long. Probably Deltas and Americans are just as long, right? Because they outline all kinds of things. And I'm sure in the contract of carriage that Rada agreed to, it said, if we lose your bag, we won't pay you more than 7,300 rupees. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if his, if his bag costs a billion rupees. The contract of carriage says, this is what we'll pay you if we lose your bag. And he, and he checked the box and said, I'm okay with this. So it's sort of a buyer beware thing. I'm not suggesting that everybody actually read the contract of carriage because they're probably you some of your time and you're going to try. Right? <laughs> but when it comes to this sort of thing, before you complain, you should say, well, what did I agree to? And should I make this complaint based on that? So I have to say that this is a whine. Yeah. And look, that's what travel insurance is for, right? And 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 it's up to people to make their own decisions about buying it or not. Uh that's just sort of has to do with your own risk tolerance as an individual. Would you rather spend the money and know that you're going to get the full amount back, but you're spending the money, certain money in exchange for uncertain benefit or not? It's, it's, it's just your choice as an individual. But yeah, that that's one that, uh, that airlines, and especially once you get into international service, it's just covered by these international conventions. And basically you're going to get the same answer generally uh, from, from, almost any airline that's the, the, there's there, there are realms where they're more flexible but with this sort of stuff lost luggage and, and that kind of thing it's, you, it's, you know you know the amazing thing seth too and it's like a shocking coincidence that almost every lost bag has a really expensive camera or computer in it <laughs> <laughs> it's it's never it's never well thank goodness they lost my underwear that I don't even have to <laughs> wash, right? Yeah. And you know, yeah. feel so bad because there's one person who does lose their bag that did have an expensive yeah. camera computer, yeah. but nobody believes them. Nobody believes them <laughs> because everybody else does the same thing. Well, on final approach now, that does it for Airlines Confidential this week. Please fasten your seatbelt and ensure your seat backs and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions. And remember, We'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429 or email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And if you decide to travel over the end of the year holidays and have an interesting experience, please tell us about it. I'm Ben Baldanzo. We'll talk to you soon. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.